might turn in your New Testaments to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And while certainly we'll allude to some other texts outside of Hebrews, this morning we're going to look at Hebrews quite a bit. And so you might put a marker there as well. And that may help you out. It's a joy to be with everyone this morning, especially those of our number who are visiting. We want you to know that you're honored guest and We'd love to see you back at any other opportunity you may have. We want you to um, feel comfortable with asking any questions that you might have about maybe the specifics of this congregation or just in general how we've been worshiping and what we have taught and what we believe. We want to be able to study together and speak openly about these things of eternal importance, and we invite you to do that if you have that as a desire and we want you to know that we're encouraged by your presence, and we hope you've been encouraged today. We've got several people that are visiting family from out of town, and we're thankful for your presence as well. And it's always good to see you and some familiar faces from other places. We're extremely blessed to be the children of God. This church, I think, this congregation is extremely blessed. I think we've got so many great reasons to rejoice and be encouraged by each other in this place. I'm I'm encouraged each and every week by all of you, and I know that you encourage each other and, and we help each other get to heaven. I'm thankful for the, the shepherds here and the words that they have spoken this morning and the encouragement about the Bible classes beginning this quarter and appreciate uh, Scott's prayer as well. And, and we're just, we've got a lot to be thankful for in this place. A lot of Bible class teachers that do an excellent job, and I think that it's appropriate to think about that as we get into this new quarter. Let's let's give honor to whom honor is due and reach out to them and express our appreciation for them. And as Steve had mentioned before, uh, do our due diligence to get as much as we can out of God's word that he's so richly blessed us with. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, the Hebrew writer by inspiration said, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrew writer employs a very common illustration that we see throughout the pages of our Bible, that of athletic events where we are running a race, in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul spoke about running a race. He spoke about how those in the Grecian games, the Isthmian games there in Corinth, they competed for a perishable crown. They went through a lot to win that perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. He spoke about disciplining himself, even to the graphic language of beating himself up, black and blue, disciplining and subjecting his body as a slave, his spirit through the Holy Spirit's instruction, gaining ascendancy over his body to live the elevated spiritual life in faith in Jesus. And in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, he mentioned running a race in athletics and talked about how we got to compete according to the rules in order to be rewarded. And so we run a race of faith. That's what faith is. It's a, it's a race. It's a spiritual race. And it's a, a daily race that requires great endurance. And so that's how he begins chapter 12, because in chapter 11, 
He spoke about a lot of people who have run that race already and they finished. They finished their race. People that lived by faith all the way back to Abel, to Enoch, to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to men and women of faith who go unmentioned in name yet not unnoticed by God. Finish their life with trusting God and await their reward as we're not made perfect apart from them. And then he looks to the greatest example of faith in Jesus. He as a man lived by faith. I know that he had an eternal mind and wisdom and knowledge beyond that of his apostles and anyone else. But he trusted in his father and he endured the cross, despising the shame, as it said, and he finished his race. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God today. And it tells us about those witnesses and then our author and finisher of faith in Jesus that they're like a great cloud of people cheering us on. But he calls them witnesses, I think, because not that they're witnessing us running our race, but they are testifying of the nature of faith which pleases God and which finds victory in chapter 11. It tells us without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In chapter 11 and verse 2, it speaks about how the people of faith, by it the elders, obtained a good testimony. And then in verse 4, Abel offered to God this sacrifice by faith, and through it he obtained witness that he was righteous. And then at the end of chapter 11, it says... All these obtained a good testimony through faith. And that's when it says they are witnesses. They are testifying of the fact that this is the life that we've got to live, the faith that we have to exhibit to please God. It works. Victory's at the end of this race of faith if we truly walk by faith and not by sight. But part of that race of faith, he says, requires elimination. And we see that with the figure of running a race. You can't just go out there with a bunch of weight on your shoulders. you you got to compete according to the rules in order to be qualified for the race. And before the race even comes physically, you've got to be disciplining yourself and going without some things, namely sin. You can't live with your sin. He also talks about weight, any weight distinct from sin, anything that would weigh us down. If you want to actually run that race and do it with endurance to get to the reward, you've got to lay those aside. But here's something interesting that he says there. He speaks of that weight and then he speaks of the sin, which so easily ensnares us. So think about the sin. That may be very personal. I think that we all have our different struggles. We all have our similar struggles. And certainly there's no temptation except such as common to man. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us, and God provides a way of escape. But your greatest struggle may not be my greatest struggle. And there may be the sin that is causing you to struggle in running this race. And it's up to you to identify that. And and we need to hold each other accountable. It may be of such a nature that someone at least is aware of it. And maybe they need to, like Nathan told David, tell you you're the man so that you can take care of the sin which weighs you down and entangles you. Nothing specified in the context. And I think by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, it isn't specified because 
It may be different for each and every one of us. What is your sin which so easily ensnares you? But I want to suggest to you something this morning that it may be left open-ended and unspecific because there is something common to each and every one of us that underlies all of our specific struggles. Someone may struggle over here with alcohol. Someone may struggle over here with lying. And I'm saying over here and over there, not because of these sections. Someone may struggle with pornography, sexual sin. Someone may struggle with some kind of deceit or pride or envy. And that may be your thing, that it's just always a struggle. It's like always around the corner. But what lies beneath all of that is something very fundamental. That if we can address that and we can lay that aside, we do ourselves a world of good. So consider the context here and the language that is utilized by the inspired writer. When he says, lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares us, the Greek order is the easily ensnaring sin. So never mind you the Greek words, but that's the order in the original. It is the easily ensnaring sin. The Young's literal translation says the closely besetting sin. So it seems to be specifying a sin that in itself is always surrounding them. It is the sin. Euperistatos, the sin which so easily ensnares us, is a compound word meaning well standing around, therefore easily encompassing. Strong says it's well standing around, thwarting like a racer in every direction. It's skillfully surrounding and besetting, he says in his comments. Vincent's word study says it's of a sin which readily or easily encircles encircles and entangles the Christian runner like a long, loose robe clinging to his limbs. Beset is a good rendering, meaning to surround. Adam Clark in his commentary said, whatever it may be, the word gives us to understand that it is what meets us at every turn, that it is always presenting itself to us. And we may have some specific things, that seem to never leave us alone. And it's always there. But I think that there's a sin which is surrounding each and every one of us all the time. Vincent's word studies goes on to comment and he suggests that the sin may be any evil propensity, but the sin of unbelief naturally suggests itself here. Jameson Foster and Brown said that it may have special reference to apostasy, which I don't know if we can narrow it down that far, but he goes on to say, The besetting sin of the Hebrews is unbelief. Matthew Henry in his commentary says, this may mean the damning sin of unbelief. And I think that that fits the context of Hebrews as a whole. There are specific things that are mentioned. There are specific things that you may be dealing with right now that you've got to handle, that you've got to get rid of. Lay aside that sin. Only you know what you struggle with specifically. And Jesus knows But I want to suggest to you that underneath all of it and the reason why we still struggle now, if we're still struggling now with a specific sin, is our wavering trust, our wavering faith in Jesus. And you see that throughout the Hebrew epistle. He's warning them of apostasy. He's telling them that you're kind of slouching over this way. And if you're not careful, you're going to fall away completely. And we often describe apostasy as it is described in chapter 2 and verse 1, he speaks about giving the more earnest heed to the things we have heard lest we drift away. It's a gradual thing. And they're already there. They're drifting. 
They're way out at sea and they don't even know it. They have moved so far away from the shoreline and they aren't even aware of it. And he's trying to wake them up so they can paddle back and stay there and put their anchor firm in to where they're not moved. And so apostasy is looming. Chapter 3 and verse 12, he talks about departing from the living God. Chapter 4 and verse 11, about falling according to the same example of disobedience as the Israelites. Chapter 6 and verses 4 through 6, he warns about their apostasy getting to the point of so much completion and finality that it's like they crucified Jesus themselves. Chapter 10 and verses 35 through the end of the chapter, he speaks about how they need to not draw back, but endure. Chapter 12 and verses 14 through 17, he speaks about falling short of the grace of God and being a profane person like Esau, selling your birthright. And then in chapter 12 and verse 25, he says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. So they're they're struggling here. Their faith is wavering. They are falling away from their Savior. And this is a big deal. This is urgent. You need to wake up or you're going to be too far gone. And it doesn't matter if you finally realize it, you're not going to have time to get back. That's the idea. Apostasy is insidious. They're dealing with false teaching. In Hebrews 13, he talks about the various and strange doctrines concerning dietary restrictions. So the Judaizers are having an effect on them as well as their countrymen. He talks in chapter 10 about how they're being persecuted. And it it was from the very beginning of their faith. And so there's there's evidence here that this may be an epistle written to the Jerusalem church and that from the very beginning, Pentecost, and we're going to study Acts chapter 3 in a couple of weeks. And persecution right out the gate. From the very beginning, you endured that struggle of affliction and persecution, and but now you're wavering. You have need of endurance. The Jews are pressuring them to turn back to that obsolete system that they had left and, and embracing what it pointed to in Christ Jesus. And that's the danger here. You need to, to get back to this. And so throughout the epistle, while there are some specific doctrinal things, very deep things, very profound things and powerful things about how much better Jesus is and this new covenant is and this hope is to what they're turning back to. There is the constant and incessant warning of apostasy and exhortation to faith. Chapter 3 and verse 12, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. Verse 18, to whom did he swear that they, the Israelites, would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey, we see they did not enter in because of unbelief. Don't follow that example. Chapter 10 and verse 35, he says, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. That's that's an important part of Hebrews throughout as, as Colby read from Hebrews chapter 3. He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, brethren, Partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. And then he says in verse six, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence. And then he says down there in verse 14, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence. And so when he's talking about this confidence and this confession, it's an outspokenness of faith. You had made the good confession. You believe that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. You believe that he's the king reigning at the right hand of the throne of God. You believe he's better than the Old Testament. You believe he's the greatest and the only high priest. You believe he's the eternal divine one. Now you're wavering about it. 
Hold fast to that confidence. Hold fast to that confession. Have some trust. Have some faith. Have some endurance. So he says, it has great reward and you have need of endurance. Chapter 10, verse 36. So that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. And he quotes from Habakkuk 2, as Paul does in Romans chapter uh, uh, 1. And he says, for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And he encourages them. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but to those who believe to the saving of the soul. And that's the context of chapter 11. You're drawing back. I have greater confidence in you than that. Just like Habakkuk didn't fully understand how God would use the Chaldeans to punish the people of Judah and the faithful would have to endure that punishment too among the sinners. And God said, you just need to trust. You need to believe. You need to endure. That's the kind of faith, not just this ascent to facts, not this intellectual understanding, but this deep-rooted integrity and fidelity and love of devotion to God that does what he says when he says it through any kind of context of difficulty. You have need of endurance. Look at all of these people who testify of the greatness of faith in Jehovah and Jesus and the success and victory that's at the end of that race. You have need of faith. So look to the author and finisher of your faith. And for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You need to trust. You need to be devoted. You need to be focused. And so when we think of faith, we ought not cheapen it by the worldly view of it, that it's some intellectual capacity that I know some facts and I even believe them to be true. But if it's faith in a scriptural way, in a saving way, then it's faith that moves us to great enterprises of which we would not be able to accomplish without the object of our faith being Jesus. We, we do with our faith. And so God tells us something. And if we really have faith, we believe it, we trust in it and in the one who revealed it then our lives will manifest it in dramatic ways. And so you may have a sin that you're struggling with. It is encompassing you, easily besetting you. And you've got to deal with that. But if we don't deal with our struggle of faith, our unbelief, not just I don't believe Jesus at all, but unbelief manifests itself in disobedience and inconsistency and wavering devotion and so it's a, it's a process. It's not just an overnight thing. That's what apostasy is. If we don't address the shortcomings of our faith in Jesus and in the word of God, we won't be able to deal with that specific sin. And so the underlying sin of all sins is a lack of faith, unbelief. And so let me ask you a few questions through Hebrews for the rest of the lesson concerning our faith. Let me suggest to you first that one of their great problems of unbelief was their lacking trust in God's word and its steadfastness. Notice back in chapter two, he said in verse one, we've got to give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. He's speaking of something spoken to them, words being the vehicle of thought. And we remember in first Corinthians two, 
how the Holy Spirit combines spiritual thoughts with spiritual words, the New American Standard Bible renders it. He speaks about the words which we have heard. We gotta, we gotta think about that, pay more attention to it, be careful to, to digest that and be attentive to the message of salvation lest we drift away and lose our lives, our souls. If the word spoken, he says, through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, not also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So he draws a, a stark contrast, an impressive contrast with people who are turning back to this old system who are attracted to that old way. And, and no wonder, because human beings... I think, become obsessed with the mystical and the, the eternal, and rightly so, but when we start thinking along those lines and we fall even into the, the pagan way of thinking about things, we start to lose focus on, on the real power. And they had this preoccupation with the word that was spoken through the great prophets who performed all these miracles, who did all of these things, men like Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all of these people we read about in the Old Testament who are mouthpieces of God and they were standing in the gap and they were fighting the good fight and they were showing the power of God as he worked through them. That's what the Old Testament came through. And then on top of that, it was spoken through angels. Galatians 3 and verse 19 it tells us that that was a ministry that was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Angels were instrumental in this. And angels appeared several times throughout the Old Testament revealing God's message. And so you've got prophets who are mouthpieces of God and angels who are being contrasted with Jesus, the Son of God. He says in verse 1, God who at various times in chapter 1 and at various ways spoken times past to the Father by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son, he says in verse four, he has also by obtained an inheritance, a better and more excellent name than the angels. And so this, this word spoken through angels proved steadfast. The word spoken through the prophets proved steadfast. And, and you see that and you understand that. But what about the word that was spoken by the son of God? That's what you're turning away from. What about the words spoken by the prophets that are apostles, the mouthpieces, the ambassadors of Christ himself who heard it first from his own lips, who, who touched him, who handled him, First John chapter 1, and declared to you that word of life so that you can have fellowship. What about that word? Remember in Matthew 17 in the transfiguration of Jesus, something that was not yet revealed until after the ascension when the apostles would reveal it to other people like Peter does in 2 Peter chapter 1. He alludes to it and uses it to show the steadfastness of the apostolic doctrine where Jesus appears with Moses and Elijah and then they disappear and God says, this is my beloved son, hear him. That's unheard of. Forget Moses and Elijah, hear him. Well, he's the son of God. It was spoken by him first. And, and all the messages that you've heard that, that you believed and obeyed, that confirmed your faith, that led to your growth, that were verified by all of those miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, God bearing witness through that, that's the word you're turning back from. You think the word spoken through angels and prophets was steadfast. What about this word? How can we escape this great salvation and expect to get out of it without punishment? 
All of this received a just reward under the Old Testament and it pales in comparison to the power that's in the New Testament. The words of the Son of God. And that's what you're turning away from. I think that we'd not soon turn away to sin from the Word of God if we really believed that. And so we've got to lay aside that sin of unbelief. There's, there's myriads of people that are trying to sow seeds of doubt in our hearts about the Word of God. And we've got to set up a defense against that. We've got to confirm the Word of God and what it speaks about the Son of God and the church and the eternal kingdom and everything about that and the salvation it offers. We've got to defend the truth and we ourselves can't do that unless we are rooted in it in faith. We understand the steadfastness of the word. We're unmoved on the rock of Christ's word as Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount concludes with so that the storm can't tear us down. And so you think about how much faith you have in the steadfastness of the law of Moses, he's telling the Hebrews. The words spoken through the prophets and angels. You remember what God told the, the people in Leviticus about how the priests were to take a specific fire and offer it to God and how Nadab and Abihu, they did not abide by that command. You remember how steadfast that word was? They offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke by those who come near me. I must be regarded as holy and before all the people I must be glorified. You've got priests that are offering worship to God. And Moses tells Aaron they didn't regard God as holy in that because they did not follow exactly what the word said. Do you believe the steadfastness of God's word? Nadab and Abihu would believe it too late. Remember Moses in Numbers 20, how before he was told to strike the rock and he did it and that's what God told him to do. He obeyed. But here in Numbers 20, times are getting stressful. He's frustrated at the complaining Israelites and God says, speak to the rock and he strikes the rock and he's kept from entering the promised land. In verse 12 of Numbers 20, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me, isn't that the problem? The sin of unbelief. Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given you. Moses, of all people. We see the steadfastness of God's word in the Old Testament. What about Jesus' word? In chapter 10 and in verse 35 he told the people there that the scripture cannot be broken. If you had understood what the psalmist said about judges calling them gods, then you would not get upset about me calling myself the son of God. Scripture can't be broken. If they can say it and it's true through their judgment and spiritual leadership, certainly the Messiah, the son of God himself can say it. There's no problem there. The scripture can't be broken. Paul would say in Galatians 6 and verse 7, as he encouraged people to apply the word of God and warned about the works of the flesh contrary to the fruit of the spirit, he told them, do not be deceived in Galatians 6 and verse 7. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh, will of the flesh reap corruption. That's the word of God telling us that. It's steadfast. He who sows to the spirit, will of the spirit reap everlasting life. If we believe that, we'll let go of that sin, won't we? God says you cannot enter in holding on to this sin. And it's proved steadfast throughout time and it will throughout eternity. 
And so if I, if I work on that struggle of believing God's word, of really trusting what it says, not just saying, I got it intellectually. I could pass the test of the disciples. You got a catechism in front of me. I could do that. But that's not what faith is. And that's why the word of God doesn't tell us to have a catechism. You have faith in the word of God to the extent that it moves the mountains in your life. It allows you by trusting him to do everything in the name of the Lord. Colossians 3 and verse 17. If I have faith in the steadfastness of God's word, I really believe that. That's going to solve a lot of problems. Lay aside that sin of not trusting God's word. And along that line, do we trust God's evaluation of sin itself? If I trusted and comprehended and and really appreciated and embraced the reality of sin's description by the Holy Spirit, I wouldn't even touch it. And and I understand we struggle with that, and, and that's the constant struggle, seeing the spiritual in a physical world, but that's what God's Word does for us, doesn't it? Notice in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. He says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. He calls it the deceitfulness of sin. We need to trust God and His revelation about the true, ugly nature of sin. It's painted up like a wonderful thing, but beneath that is corruption and depravity and the penalty of death. He says it's the deceitfulness of sin that's the great threat to our lives before God. And when he calls it the deceitfulness of sin, he's telling us sin is a fraud. Remember in Romans chapter 7 where it's personified as the Apostle Paul speaks about life without Christ under the old law and how you're just in bondage to sin. And he talked about how sin through the commandment deceived me and by what was meant to be good, it produced death in me. So sin just doesn't show up as sin. It masks itself. And we get to thinking and rationalizing our sin and we get to thinking about how, well, it may be worth it. And you've heard the phrase, you do now and ask for forgiveness later. That is not a spiritually sound phrase. Forgiveness is not there to be abused so that you can do what you want and avoid the consequences. And if that's our idea about it, we're going to end up staying in that sin. You can't have that mindset and get out of it. And so he says sin's a fraud. It's not worth it. It it paints this perfect and beautiful picture of pleasure and fulfillment and purpose. And it is just telling all the lies. And he says, you need to make sure you're aware of how deceitful it is, lest he says you be hardened through it. So you understand that when Satan deceives us, it's not just this one time thing where he's he's going to get us once and he'll let us go. His purpose is to dull our conscience, to sear our hearts, to harden our hearts to where since we've been deceived once, It's easy to be deceived again and again, and then eventually we're staying in it and we have no feeling. It doesn't bother me at all. And so it takes you further than you want to go, as we've said before. It keeps you longer than you want to stay and costs you more than you want to pay. It's a a good way of remembering. It's not a one-time thing. It lasts. There's great consequence to that. If you trust what God is saying about sin, 
You trust His Word. You, you have that rooted in your heart and character. You're going to stay away from it. Because you notice it might be too late in chapter 12. He speaks about falling short of the grace of God and he uses Esau as he speaks about a root of bitterness springing up. He says, lest any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. And so he's deceived. In in Genesis chapter 25 and verse 32, Esau said, look, I'm about to die. What is this birthright to me? Satan is so good that he convinced him that a daily hunger was more important to be fulfilled than his entire inheritance, his birthright. And he sold it. And and we might read that, that short passage, that account in Genesis 25 and think, Esau, you are outside of your mind. But we do it every time we sin. We have an urge. We have a longing. We have a solution to a problem that won't go away, but it's not God's will. And we justify what we do because it's for a moment. We sell our birthright. But you notice the problem with that. As he warned them about being hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. In verse 17, it says, You know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. The repentance of his father. His father made the promise already. He gave it to Jacob. He couldn't reverse that. And I know that while we're still in our flesh and we still draw breath, there's time. But Satan wants you to think you have more time than you actually have. And eventually there will be a time where you can't find God. Isaiah 55 says, seek him while he is near, while he may be found. And you won't find a place for repentance. He will not give you another chance. And so if I believe what God says about that, I'm not going to dabble over here in sin. If I have a full conviction and trust in what he says about sin, I'm going to take it seriously and I'm going to think twice when I'm tempted. Notice what John records in 1 John 2 about all that is in the world. And I want us to notice something important that he mentions there. When he speaks about all the things in the world, don't love it. For he who loves the world, love of the Father is not in him. And he explains all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. It's not of the Father, but it's of the world. And then he says something very important. And it's the Spirit disclosing to us the reality of a life of service to sin and the flesh versus a life of service to God. And if we believe it, if we trust it, it's going to really help us next time we're tempted. He says the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. He's telling us, that not only is the opportunity for sin going to pass away completely, when the work and the elements and the the works that are in it, the earth and the works that are in it is going to be burned up, there won't be an opportunity for sin. There won't be the desire for it. When the flesh is no more, temptation and sin is no more. But if you die in your sin, you're just going to have eternal regret. And so the pleasure is not going to be there. The desire is not going to be there. You're not going to reminisce about the good old times. And so there's nothing this world has to offer you that's of a lasting nature. Don't be deceived by it. You trust God's word that it says that. But he says he who does the will of God abides forever. And he's talking about our daily deposits for our retirement spiritually. You're depositing in the flesh. You're depositing in the flesh. You're depositing in the flesh. That's going to pass away. You're not going to see any return. Everything you put into service to God as you deny the flesh and you overcome temptation and you don't live a sinful life, you'll receive full reward in return. 
He who does the will of God abides forever. You invest in the spiritual now, which takes a tremendous amount of sacrifice in the flesh. And it will be worth it later. But we got to trust that, brethren. We can't just know it intellectually. We've got to trust it. And that, that's where the next point comes in. Hebrews, do you trust the steadfastness of God's word and his evaluation of sin? And then do you trust and the power of your high priest to get you through it. Because there's going to be times of forgetfulness. There's going to be times of inattention. There's going to be times of weakness, of doubt, of pressure. And you're going to need some help. And God says Jesus is the answer. Your high priest is the answer. And I think that when we succumb to temptation, sometimes we manifest, among many other forms of unbelief, are lacking trust in the efficacy of Jesus as high priest. We showed that we, by our negligence in coming to him, by our actions in rejecting him, don't believe that he is powerful enough to help us overcome that urge, overcome that temptation, overcome that fear, overcome that doubt. And so see what Hebrews tells us in chapter 4 in verse 14. As he had said in chapter 3, Hold your confession of your high priest firm to the end. He says there in verse 14 of chapter 4, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. He's not like those other high priests who served in a physical tabernacle. He passed through the heavens into the true holiest of all. You need to hold that fast. Then he explains we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. We go through something difficult. We have a particular sin, maybe. And we feel isolated on an to the degree that we're not going to confess our trespasses to our brethren because we're afraid they don't understand. We're afraid they'll look at us like the weaklings we feel that we are and that we have no excuse and there's no reason why you should be struggling with that when in reality, James chapter 5 tells us to confess our trespasses to one another. There's health in that and it's not just talking about if you sin publicly, come forward publicly. But there may be something that you can't kick and it would do you a world of good to tell someone about it and they can strengthen you and hold you accountable. Now, I'm not going to go to them though. I don't trust that they're going to to tell me the right way. I don't trust that they're not going to hold it over my head and use it against me. I don't trust that they'll look at me differently and, and, and won't start treating me differently. Okay. Why aren't you going to Jesus? He says he can sympathize with you. He knows what you're going through. He, he's been tempted in all points as we are. And brethren, he sympathizes with that. He has compassion on it. He doesn't look at us in our struggles and think, what a pathetic excuse for a disciple, he has pity and he wants to help. And the thing is, he can help. That person may not be able to help you. Even if they have the opportunity and responsibility to help you, they may not care enough. Not Jesus. He's present. He's able. He's powerful. He's willing. And he's full of love for you. And so he applies it in verse 16. If you believe that, you hold fast that confession. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And sometimes we think of that with just that first part, find mercy. I need forgiveness. Yeah. 
If you sin, you need to come to that throne of grace to find that mercy. You can't get to heaven without confessing your trespasses to God and asking for that forgiveness, humbling yourself before him and realizing your great need again for the blood of Jesus to wash away your sin. You won't make it to heaven without doing what 1 John 1, 9 says if you sin again. So often we, we keep back the most powerful part of this priesthood as those who live in the grace of God. And that is the grace to help in time of need. I don't want to sin. Not that I have sin and any forgiveness. That, that's appropriate. And if that happens, you need to get it right. But let's try to avoid ever getting to that point. Help me overcome this temptation. I need grace to strengthen me. The way of escape, I know it's there. Paul said in Hebrews chapter or 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9 that Jesus told him, my grace is sufficient for you. And so before just crumbling and then having to be picked up, how about be strengthened and shored up so that you're just better and endure more by the grace of God? If we trust in the high priesthood of Jesus, won't we come to him? in that time of need and avoid falling short. Notice how he describes it in chapter 7 when he speaks about the meat of, of the high priesthood of Christ after the order of Melchizedek in Psalm 110. And you notice what he describes Christ's priesthood like in verse 23 of chapter 7. There were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing Levitical priesthood. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That word uttermost is impressive. Arngierger says it could mean meeting a very high standard of quality or completeness or meeting unlimited duration of time forever, all time. And I think he's employing both points here. He said in chapter 7 and verse 11, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek? There wasn't perfection, completion. Sin is not dealt with with that priesthood. And so there needed to be this priesthood. It is complete meeting its highest standard of quality and need. But then it's enduring. Verse 23, he always lives to make intercession for them. Yet we don't take advantage of what's right there at our disposal, don't we? We fail sometimes. We don't, we don't show trust in that, do we? I know I failed to, to realize in a time of weakness, well, that's just the way I am. I can ask for forgiveness. I've already gone this far. Let's go a little further. I, I'm already here. But if, if we trust that this is the one that's waiting for us to come to him to aid us in that time of need, we really realize the power of the high priesthood of Jesus. We're going to do it. And we're not going to make excuses anymore. And we're going to put that sin that always besets us to bed. We're going to find other challenges, but we'll be equipped to meet them because of our high priest and how much we trust that. And lastly, but certainly not least, if they trusted in God's promise of judgment, they'd think twice before committing the sins that they were committing. And wouldn't we? There is a day of reckoning on the horizon. And that is a certainty. You know, everything that we read about in the Old Testament, all the days of the Lord that are described in the prophets, 
You think of Sodom and Gomorrah. A day of reckoning came for them. A day of the Lord came for them where the wrath from heaven against sin and unrighteousness on earth was manifested in dramatic ways and entire civilizations and peoples and nations were destroyed and crumbled because God said, if you don't repent, you'll perish. All of those days of the Lord typify the day of the Lord where there will be again a universal judgment, not of water, but of unquenchable fire where God will separate the faithful from the unfaithful and fate will be sealed for eternity. And if I trust when Jesus says that he is returning, apart from sin for salvation, yes, but in that for judgment as well, then I will think twice about making the decision to sin. In Hebrews 9 and verse 27, it says, As it appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. So those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So in chapter 4, when he speaks about the unfaithfulness of the Israelites under the Old Testament and how the good news was preached to them as well as to us, verse 2, but it wasn't mixed with faith in those who heard it. So they didn't enter the promised rest. But a rest remains, he says, you don't follow that same example of disobedience. For the word of God, verse 12, is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And while it certainly is true in judgment, Jesus said, my word will judge you in the last day, John 12, 48. It's true now, brethren, let it judge you now. Let it judge you now so that you can rectify wrongs, correct struggles, and, and commit to it. So that when you're placed beside it in the end, you measure up by God's grace. So let it judge you now. Let it discern your thoughts and intent. Stop telling yourself lies if you are. Because we can convince ourselves that we're, we're true disciples, we're being faithful, but really we're kind of deceiving ourselves because there's some part of me that I've not devoted to Jesus yet. I can go this far, but I've got a limit. And what he's saying is let the word of God split you open before you're crushed under it in the final judgment. Because he says, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Brethren, we will give account. Notice in chapter 10, when he's speaking about their willful sin as they're turning away from Christ. If you make that full turn, it's like you trample the Son of God underfoot. You count the blood of the covenant a common thing by which we are sanctified. And then he says, you insult the spirit of grace. And then he says this, in chapter 10 and verse 30. For we know him uh, who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We can get ourselves into this insulated mindset where we think of it as us and them. When in reality, it's just the world. And the church is set apart. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's sanctified. It's holy. But not if you're just pretending to be a Christian. You're not a part of that sanctified group if you're just pretending to be a Christian. And so I've been baptized into Christ, so I'm good. But God's going to bring judgment to his people. And so there are pretenders in the church. They're hypocrites. There are those who are living a double life and maybe they're doing it with the boldness that is 
Not appropriate. There's no reason for that boldness. But maybe it's a a kind of self-deception that they're leading a life of lies. They're telling themselves that though subconsciously they know they're not right with God, everything's cool. Well, in the end, all that's coming out. And God's going to see all the goats that are masquerading as sheep and he's going to cast them away saying, I never knew you. He's going to judge his people who bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, both good and evil. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 14. We sing a song sometime that we really need to believe. We need to take it to heart. Someday you'll stand at the bar on high. Someday your record you'll see. Someday you'll answer the question of life. What will your answer be? Where will you spend your eternity? Brethren, the problem behind each and every one of our struggles and sins is unbelief. And I know that seems obvious, but if we work on our faith, we'll get to the root of those problems. We've got to believe God's word being steadfast. We've got to believe what he tells us about sin. We've got to believe the power of our high priest. And we've got to believe judgment's coming. It could come this very moment. What will your answer be? If you're not a Christian, we want to give you the opportunity to become one because that day of reckoning is coming for you as well. And one of the things you'll be judged by is whether you've given your life to Jesus by putting him on in baptism There's no reason not to do that today. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He died for your sins and He conquered that death and He's at the right hand of the throne of God right now reigning in His kingdom, you can be a part of that kingdom. You can be a child of God. You can be saved. And we can assist you with that this day. If there's any other spiritual need, we can assist you with. Come forward while we stand and sing.